change my ways. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. My name is Gavriel Hakoen. You can call me Gavi. And I am cult expert Sadie Carpenter, and you can call me cult expert Sadie Carpenter. And I do call you cult expert Sadie Carpenter. That's what That's you're saying. That's my name in your now. phone. Yeah, and in, in my phone, it is Sadie Carpenter, cult expert. This is the second part of a two-part episode, uh, which is uh, uh, chronicling Mike Warnke's claims and also the truthiness of those claims. Sadie, do you want to give <laughs> us a bit thereof. of like a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sadie, do you want to give us a bit of a recap of what we talked about last week? Sure thing. So last week we talked about. Um, primarily the claims that Mike Warnke wrote in his Christian best-selling book, The Satan's Seller. Uh, in this book, he talked about his childhood where he was orphaned at a young age, his indoctrination into Satanism as a young college student, uh, his quick descent into the worlds of, of drugs and um, sacrifices and rituals. <laughs> And eating people's fingers. Right. And and I <laughs> for anybody who missed last week, definitely go back and listen to it because this week's episode won't make sense without it. But rest assured, we are laughing about these things because we have many, many reasons to believe that they did not happen. This book also talked about his eventual reconversion to Christianity um, and the beginnings of his anti-occult ministry. This ministry was very successful for about 20 years, uh, and one of its uh, one of its many downfalls was the publication of an article by Cornerstone Magazine in the early 1990s that effectively debunked everything he said in the book that we talked about last week. So, first part of this episode, we're going to talk about what's in that Cornerstone Magazine article, because it is extensive. It is a long, long, long article. It's many, many pages. It's probably like 30 pages. 20, 30 pages. Uh, it's 20,000 words, however long that is. Um, and anyone who knows me knows that I love long form investigative journalism. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, it's a lengthy article. So we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about uh, basically, if you remember a year ago, we talked about John Todd, who basically has the same story as Warren Key, um, and they were popular at the same time. And so we're trying to figure out which one of them ripped the story off of the other one. So we're going to talk about that in the second half of the episode. Uh, buckle up, because this is going to be a wild ride. As you guys all know, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host, Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, please consider subscribing to our Patreon, where there will be an extended version of today's episode, as well as extended versions of most of our other episodes, as well as bonus content. So if you are new to this show and you haven't heard our review of the Christian Fundamentalist Sex Manual, uh, then that is available only for our patrons. Uh, and so that is really fun. And you can check all that stuff out at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. You can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. 
We also have a Q&A episode coming up next month. So if you have a question that you want to hear answered on the show, please, please, please email it to us at leavingedenpod at gmail.com. That is leavingedenpod at gmail.com. And we may answer your question on a podcast episode coming up soon. So that would be super fun. Um, And we do love doing a good mailbag episode. Anything else, Sadie, before I thank our patrons? I think that's it for now. Okay. Well, we have two I Gave It All tier patrons, and they are Melissa Mosley and Kathleen Moncrief. You guys are truly incredible, and we do deeply depend on the contributions that you guys give us every month that allow us to make this show happen. We also have many uh, Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. Your names are Alex Todd, Alicia Guild, Allie Allen, Anisha Patel, Brittany, Brooke Tully, Krissa, Crystal Patterson, Dear Ethan Hansen the Musical, Eleanor Donahue, Emery Fairlosser, Hannah Ross, Hope Norum, Horton Hears a Shane, I'm just here to send Sadie True Crime Podcast Suggestions, a.k.a. Meg, Janine Collin, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna K. Terwee, Kristen Marie, Lauren Vanderwall, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Lorena Watson, MC Crunchwrap, hashtag The Boy Who Cried Sauce, Michaela Upright, Madeline Cusick, Marlene Astuve, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arendt, Rob the Methodist, Sarah Reese, Scooby Sleuth, Stephanie Johnson, Susie, Tara McNamara, Tiffany Enderby, Walnut Walnutson, and as always, Wes the Cowboy. Thank you so much to all of our I Gave It All and Faith Promise Missions to your patrons. And to all of our patrons over on Patreon, uh, we have a real good time over there. Sadie, hit us with that TW, and then we'll get right into the episode. This uh, this TW is pretty long, <laughs> just so you know. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, in general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will naturally mention one or more of these topics. We do avoid any graphic detail unless it's relevant to the story that we're telling on that day. And if we are going to include that detail, we will give you as the audience the heads up so that you can skip ahead if needed. In this episode, we are discussing the satanic panic and claims of satanic ritual abuse, as well as a lot of drug use and brief mentions of a uh, suicide contemplation, the suicide in question was not completed, and domestic violence. Generally, so Mike Warnke said that he did a lot of drugs. How we are going to handle that, we know we have listeners who may be in recovery or may be triggered by that for other reasons. So what we're doing in this episode, we'll mention the names of the substances that he said he was on and the effects that he said he experienced. We will not describe his methods of use or anything graphic like that. There is one point in the episode where we describe an alleged sexual assault. I say alleged because (laughs) 
it is Warnke who claimed that it happened. There is no evidence that it ever actually happened. I don't personally believe that it did. <clears throat> there is no victim claiming to... There's no person claiming to be the victim here. Uh, in that instance, we are also going to avoid, avoid any detail because even a story that I believe Warnke fully made up could still be triggering to people. There is also a good amount in this episode of general witchcraft-type spookiness, alleged blood drinking, that sort of thing. A few little gross-out moments. We don't believe it happened, so we're not treating it as truthful, but it will come up, and I'll give you a quick heads-up before those things come up in my notes so that anybody who does need to skip can skip. We always want our listeners to feel empowered to use that skip button for any reason. If there's anything that's going to be an issue for you, I don't want to hurt you with my words. And we're talking about Mike Warnke, The Satan Seller. His book came out in 1972. Mike Warnke, uh, for the next couple of decades, he was a regular Christian speaker, Christian comedian. He did the whole thing uh, for about two decades. In 1991, Cornerstone Magazine came out with an extensive article in which they it was it was a, 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 a extensive piece of investigative journalism in which they debunked his claim and exposed pretty much everything that he's ever said in in any of his speeches or, or any of his accounts of what his life was like they, they just debunked his entire existence as fraud <laughs> this article is methodical I love, I love it. I love it so much. They went so far as to interview actually about 100 friends, acquaintances, and family members of his. Uh, they even interviewed Aunt Edna, who was one of the old aunts that he stayed with right after his father died, the ones that warned him about Catholicism. We know you'll be tempted, son. Um, so he claimed that when he showed up at her house as a little boy, he showed up cursing, swearing, bad attitude, bad kid. And she said, no, he was a great kid. I don't know what he's talking about. So literally within the first couple paragraphs of his book, we're starting to get down to the debunking. Another friend that they spoke to uh, named Diana Kredelik, she was a friend of his during college. She was quoted as saying, I always wanted to write him a letter and say, Mike, when were you able to have this coven of 1,500 people? About the most exciting thing we used to do was play play croquet. This is, I, uh, these accounts were so funny. Be like, they went and talked to everyone. They talked to, like, everybody who he ever knew in high school. They talked to his, like, high school girlfriend. Yeah. They talked to, like, yeah. Uh, college girlfriends, college roommates, Guys yeah. he hung out with in high school, his his uh, stepmother, adoptive mother, uh, his aunt who raised him, his half or stepbrother, uh, the son of. So actually, okay. Yeah, it's just like that. He he was just a guy who just liked to to like make up stories and play pranks on people, and that's what he liked to do. Like yeah. he could have honestly, if he wanted to be like. A comedian or like i mean he ended up being a comedian but if he ever if he had wanted to be like a, a improv got like an snl guy like imagine if instead of doing all this bullshit he'd ended up on snl like he could have been a good actor yeah so i want to pull one more little bit from the high school friends that they spoke to before we start digging into his timeline that doesn't work 
Jeff Nesmith was a high school friend of Warren Key's who talks about several different scams and tricks that Mike used to pull in high school. So one in particular was that Mike would pretend to be a Russian immigrant who didn't speak much English, and then he would make Nesmith order for him or translate for him at restaurants. But there are multiple stories of other low-key, just-for-fun, just-scamming-because-I-can incidents. There was also the one where he got a date with this girl, and then he... uh or, or convinced his friend into pretending to be his chauffeur yeah. slash like butler. That was to also drive Jeff Nesmith. Car. Yeah. yeah. It was Jeff. Like they just go along and do all these things. And it was just like kind of a, a, a dumb thing that they do for fun. Yeah. But I mean, it, it was, it was the early sixties. What we need to do though, is dig into the timeline of when Mike claims he was, a Satanist, a master counselor moving up in the ranks of the Satanic Master Organization. We know that Mike started college on September 13th, 1965. Military records show that he joined the Navy on June 2nd, 1966. So everything that happened in the majority of the book, from drinking too much and deciding to go to weed instead and then getting into hard drugs, participating in a Timothy Leary acid test, getting into the satanic sex party scene, rising through the ranks of Satanism, studying enough Satanism and doing enough drug running for Dean that he was able to rise up to the third level of Satanism and get initiated there and then become a master counselor when Dean moved up in the satanic organization, getting invited to multiple Satan conferences, burning down a building for Carl, and needing to become more extreme and participating in chopping off dudes' fingers and some sexual assaults in the name of Satan, all of that had to happen in the course of seven and a half months. That's like less than a school year. September 13th, 1965 to June 2nd, 1966. So so that's literally just like, what did you do your freshman year of college? Oh, I... uh... I got really into Satanism, became like a, a level four druid and started chopping people's fingers off and eating them. Like that's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and went to multiple Satan conferences and, 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 and did potions with this one girl and all of that. Also during the majority of this time, he had a girlfriend who he met shortly after the beginning of college and very quickly got engaged to. Her name is Lois Eckenrod. Lois said that the two of them spent the majority of that seven months together. They were together almost every day. And she doesn't know how he would ever have had time to do even one of the things that he claimed to do. Also, in a different book called Hitchhiking on Hope Street, Mike claimed to have been shot in a bar fight in this same like 1965 to 1966 time period. Uh, Lois was asked about that and all she did was laugh. Yeah, the impression that I got about Mike from reading this article is he's just like a, a like a regular kid. Like he was never involved in anything remotely even mildly sketchy. Like yeah. maybe he smoked weed like once and then he's just like I smoked weed once now I'm like a, a, a Tony Montana drug kingpin. So speaking of 
drugs, uh, Cornerstone was not able to turn up any record of a Timothy Leary acid test or any acid test on the campus of the school that he attended ever. So, seems like that was probably not real. Absolute shocker there. Yeah. Um, does this shock you? <laughs> does this shock you? Does no, this not shock the slightest. <laughs> yeah. His college friends say, sure, we experimented with Ouija boards and with tarot cards. And uh, one guy that he knew in college says, yeah, Mike asked me to join his coven. But they also say that there was basically no weed readily available in that entire area until around 1967. It was just not a thing that college kids did in 1965. Man, dealer Mike on the block was not doing his job slinging dope. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Man. I mean, maybe that's how he pissed Satan off. Yeah, that's how. That's why they uh, ditched him in front of the hospital is because he wasn't doing a very good job at selling drugs. He was just... <laughs> Man, he was, he, was, he, was, he was like, man, I was such a badass. I was selling weed and Adderall. Okay, Jake from the dorm floor. Come on. Come on now. So uh, <laughs> on one of his comedy albums, Mike does say that before boot camp, his hair was past waist length and he had six inch long fingernails that he painted black. Uh, Yikes. <laughs> Yeah, six inch long fingernails. That's that's like so, like natural thing. Not even like acrylics. No, like he he's not like out here with acrylic nails. No, like he had just let his nails grow into claws. Ew. I think that's just a fake detail. So uh, Lois Eckenrod was actually Clearly. kind of pissed about this particular allegation because she her tone in this interview was like, you know what? I've had about enough of this for Mike. I gave him his Navy going away party in 1966. It was a dry party with cake and soda, no alcohol. Cause we were underage and he definitely did not have waist length hair. The one thing that Lois can confirm about Mike's story as he wrote it is that he did have a Christian conversion while at boot camp. However, Lois and many others call BS on his story about being on the point of taking his own life and being saved by the campus crusaders walking by singing a Jesus song. Lois and other college friends say that he was involved with the campus crusade himself before the events of that story ever took place. And that there was uh, one person that said he was professing Christianity as early as 1965. I could go on and on about the claims that his friends deny, but I want to move on to something completely different. <laughs> go for it. Which is Warnke's American Orthodox ordination. So I just found out about this doing the research for this episode because he does not mention it at all in the book. But That's so interesting. Well, it, it did it happened after the the course of events in the book. So, but his, I feel like he could have maybe mentioned his interest in this niche religion if he had had it in 1972. So I feel that he had likely not heard of this yet or wasn't interested in it yet at the time the book came out. Or maybe that, well, how do the fundies feel about Orthodox Christians? 
Oh, bad, because that's to the fundies, that's the same thing as Catholics. See, there you go. Like, if he come out and said, I was ordained as an Orthodox Christian, they would have been like, uh... Yeah. That would have raised as as many eyebrows as saying that you were a Satanist. So, evidently, there are independent ministers who have split off from the Orthodox Church. It's basically like the IFB, but for Orthodoxy. And Mike talks one of those guys into ordaining him in the early 70s, not long after the publication of The Satan Seller. Interesting. It is very interesting hmm. because you'll remember from the beginning of this episode that Mike was really interested in Catholicism. He had theological concerns, but he was really, really into the statues and the smells and the bells and the way that things looked within a Catholic church, especially the finely chiseled fi figure of Jesus. So I mentioned the, the Orthodox ordination to set up for something that happens in the future. So that's just another one of those things we've got to remember as we move through this episode. In 1969, Mike was involved with the Melody Land Christian Center. He was working with their addiction hotline, which this is not mentioned at all in the Satan Cellar. So in the book, he's telling us that 1969, 1970 were times that he was really stagnant in his faith after returning from Vietnam. He was doubting God. He hadn't met Dave Balsiger yet. He had not met Tim LaHaye yet. But in real life, he was working at a Christian addiction hotline. He was volunteering in a Christian church and involved in a Christian church. Anyway, he met Balsiger. He got a hold of the, the Witchmobile and he started traveling around the country telling his story before and uh former friends and acquaintances would hear about him traveling and telling his story or would read the satan seller and would think wow that's that's nuts i don't think any of that is true apparently mike approached two former friends of his or old friends of his before publication of the book and asked them to sign affidavits that everything in the book was true and neither one of them were willing to. Well, of course they were, you know, that like, they, they, because, of, <laughs> because of the didn't happen part. Yeah. So now I want to talk about what Wernke was doing between the publication of the Satan seller and when things started to fall apart from him with the published publication of the Cornerstone article in the early 90s. So Mike was traveling and telling his story. He had moved his wife, Sue, to Denver because he thought that would be a better base of operations. He was in communication with a lot of different pastors, with Dave Balsiger, with other people who were up and comers in the Christian recording industry, the Christian com comedy industry. He was first doing a lot of like small scale meetings. So he would have a meeting in the basement of a church or at a Christian coffee shop. And these were, these were smaller meetings. He was able to make a little bit of money to support his family off of it, but he wasn't getting rich by any means. One of his recording, one of his comedy slash Satanism acts was recorded on accident because a prominent Christian band was playing right before his set and they went to record the band but left the tape running. 
And his set that night was really good. The tape got attention from people in the Christian music industry, and he got signed to basically a record deal. So his his star was rising. He, by this point, had two children with his first wife, Sue. She was living in Denver. He was traveling around the country, and that's when he met Carolyn Alberti. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, he he met Carolyn while he was still married to his first wife, Sue. And I would like to once again reiterate that that so much of the Satan seller was about Sue, how he loved her so much, and she had brought him closer to Jesus, and she had physically prayed demons off of him, and she was so spiritual, and she was the mother of his kids, and like he loved her so much. You remember all that? Oh, yes. Well, he immediately started having an affair with Carolyn Alberti like three years later in 1975. Oh, no. Yeah. He sure loved Sue a lot. So he was one of his big mentors was Pastor Don Ryling. Uh, Pastor Ryling flew all over the country to try to save his marriage with Sue. So he would meet them in Denver. He would fly out to meet Mike wherever he was on the road at the time. He was really, really working to try to reconcile the marriage between Mike and Sue. Warnke moved out of his house in Denver into an apartment with Carolyn. Um, Sue didn't like that <laughs> very much. Poor Sue. I feel can't imagine that she would. I feel so bad for her. I do too, but also she doesn't get to be married to Mike Warnke anymore, which is kind of a bonus. Yeah, I'm sure she's doing probably better in life than she would have been if she was still married to him because he was a by this point an up-and-coming christian comedy recording artist and selling christian records through a christian publishing company mike couldn't get a divorce from sue unless he claimed that she had been unfaithful to him so he did claim that and sue was like i don't know what the hell you're talking about you're the one who just moved out of our house to live in an apartment with this other woman. Riling, Pastor Riling tried multiple times over like a year and a half, two years to convince Wernke to just quit having an affair and go back to your wife. What is wrong with you? Uh, but Wernke was done. He was determined to get out of that marriage. So Wernke served Sue Divorce papers in 1976, and the divorce was finalized in December of 1976. Hmm. Mike Warnke and Carolyn Alberti wanted to then get married. They moved together to Nashville. So not only did he divorce his wife for his uh, adulterous affair partner, but he also moved across the country and left her with their children. Oh, no. Great job, Mike. So he moved to Nashville to be closer to the, the hub of the Christian recording industry, and he took Carolyn with him. They moved into an apartment in Nashville, and the first thing that Mike did was go to the store and get, like, cases of beer, cases of wine, cases of whiskey. And we all know that drinking has historically been a great activity for Mike Warnke to participate in. Well, drinking is also a gateway drug into Satanism. Right. You would think he would know. <laughs> you know, if you buy enough alcohol at the liquor store, the clerk is going to look at you and say, you know, you like seven and sevens. Well, have you tried the seven tenets of Satanism? <laughs> I heard there's seven levels to it. <laughs> the seven levels of Satanism. Every person who works at a liquor store is like a, a, like a level one on the Satanism 
yeah ladder like their their pyramid scheme of satanism right so they're like level one but they get to at least they get to so if you go to work at the liquor store then you automatically get to go to the satan sex orgies you just don't get to go to the like the meetings and get your demon rings with magic powers right or or study for your college degree in how to become a werewolf yeah (laughs) so mike was he was indulging in behavior that was broadly seen as non-christian while keeping up an appearance as this great former Satanist super Christian recording artist. Some of his friends in Nashville who were in the Christian recording industry were not a fan of what he was doing because they felt like he was being a hypocrite. Other friends felt like what he was doing was fine because, you know, he's a good guy. He's doing his best. He's bringing people to Jesus. So there was... A bit of a rift in his friend group because some people were supportive of him and Carolyn wanting to get married and some people were not supportive and felt like he needed to go back to Sue and get his act together and practice what he preached. One particular couple that were friends of his named Mike and Karen Johnson really, really strongly felt like he needed to dump Carolyn, quit drinking, go back to Sue, that it would not be moral for him and Carolyn to get married and him continue on in the recording industry. But the guy who owned the record company who put out his material, he he describes himself in the Cornerstone interview as like, you know what, I was young and dumb and I should have stood up to him and I failed to stand up to him. And I knew in my heart that this was just not of God. I knew in my heart that this was not Christian behavior, but I just couldn't manage to stand up to him. I'm looking for that guy's name. Wes Yoder was the the head of the recording company. So finally, Warren Key and Alberti really wanted to get married. Mike and Carolyn really wanted to get married. So there was this whole meeting set up with Wes Yoder and Mike and Karen Johnson and Mike Warnke and Carolyn and the pastor, Don Reiling. And there was this entire conference about whether Mike and Carolyn could get married. And all of these people are going on with their reasons for and reasons why not they should be able to get married. And Carolyn pipes up and Carolyn says, well, I think it's perfectly moral for us to get married. The only thing I need is for Mike to quit cheating on me with that other woman in Denver. <laughs> she was not referring to Sue. Mike what? was No. Mike was cheating on the woman that he was cheating on his wife with. So he had his wife. He had his affair partner. And then he had a third woman in Denver. You know, there's some people who I feel like they should just like, I I just feel like, you know, Mike should have just been like ethically non-monogamous. I feel like he's addicted to the rush of cheating. I don't think it's about the sex. I don't think it's about anything else. I think it's the rush of doing something and getting away with it. I think he just likes lying to people. And yeah, he enjoys pulling one over on people. Apparently, Mike (laughs) convinced the woman that he was cheating on his wife with that he wasn't going to cheat on her with anybody else, which always goes well. (laughs) And Mike and Karen Johnson were really mad about it. But Warnke and Carolyn Alberti decided to get married in early 1977. So he divorced his wife 
in late 1976 and then married Carolyn in early 1977. Speaking of the thrill of pulling something over on somebody, I have another quote from Bill Fisher, who was a guy who knew Mike Warnke when he was in the Christian music industry. He says, Mike would personify himself as various characters at times. Mike had his Indian mojo, or sometimes he'd be a Scotsman, or Jewish, or a Catholic priest, or Jeremiah Johnson, or Black. He wanted to think he had Black blood because Andre Crouch told him he had soul. What? Nope. Nope. Who's Andre Crouch? Uh, Christian musician. Oh. Oh. (laughs) He's just like, I mean, I mean, look, if he was just like an actor or like if, if he was like a, 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 an improv guy, he would have been fine. Mm -hmm. Like if he was like a polyamorous improv guy, he could have been like, okay, I know, man, but he was just Christian. He, he just, liked he just likes it he just likes pulling one over on people so by 19 so Wernke and alberti were married in early 1977 and two years later by 1979 alberti says that mike Wernke had become physically abusive and he had also met rose hall his next affair partner who would later be his third wife oh no yeah so <sighs> Mike Johnson had spent extensive time on the road with Warnke. Even though he was against Mike Warnke and Carolyn Alberti getting married, he still was part of the organization and was maybe trying to be a supportive friend and trying to be a good influence on Mike Warnke. Uh, Johnson reported that there w- they would go do their Christian comedy show, there would be Christian music, they'd fill out a huge church auditorium, they'd make a ton of money, and then they'd take all that money they just made and go to a nightclub and drink the whole night. Hell yeah. Sounds like a good time. Yeah, <laughs> except for the whole Christian. And this was this at the time, especially, was broadly considered not appropriate behavior for a Christian minister. Carolyn Alberti confirms Mike Johnson's stories on all of that. By 1979... Mike and Karen Johnson tried to have an intervention over Warnke's drinking and his cheating on Carolyn, but Mike Warnke reacted really violently to their attempted intervention. Karen Johnson never liked Mike Warnke because she felt that he was a bad influence on her husband, on her husband, Mike Johnson. Which was probably a fair call for Karen because Mike and Karen eventually divorced due to Mike Johnson's drinking and partying on the road with Mike Warnke. So I feel like she was uh, correct there. But uh, Mike Warnke did not listen to Karen's recommendations or Mike Johnson's requests for him to slow down. Finally, in late 1979, Mike Warnke abused carolyn he beat her so badly that she left him pretty much on the spot good for her yeah absolutely um (sighs) so this guy yeah um just like other people don't even exist to him yes like he's this is like the worst example of main character syndrome i've ever seen 
it's yeah, like he's just like other people only exist to him like what can this person get me and that's just the most oh yeah you see that in people sometimes and it's just like oh no like no thank you like stay out of my life satan mm-hmm. like <laughs> satan like literally like you're just like no i can see i can see what kind of person you are a mile away all of your relationships are transactional and mm-hmm. um it's just oh yeah it makes you wonder um who does mike warnke love and and having read that book it, it's hard to imagine him loving anyone he i think that he loves um other people loving him. Mm-hmm. So Mike and Carolyn pay very close attention to the dates here. Mike and Carolyn divorced on November 29th, 1979. And Mike and Rose Hall were married January 2nd, 1980. Wow. So mm. roughly 30 days have September. 32, 33, 34, 34 days apart. Wow. That's something. Mm. Mm-hmm. So with Rose, his third wife, Warnke used his American Orthodox ordination to found an independent Orthodox ministry called the Holy Orthodox Catholic Church in Kentucky. He became an independent Orthodox bishop, which really just requires that you have another independent Orthodox bishop ordain you. So he, all he had to do to become an independent Orthodox bishop was convince one independent Orthodox guy to ordain him back in the 70s, and then convince one more independent Orthodox guy to ordain him as a, bush, as a bishop. It's not a real uh, involved process, much like becoming an IFB pastor. Yeah, you can just start a church and say, I'm a pastor. Right. So this is like one step harder than that. (laughs) This ministry, Holy Orthodox Catholic Church in Kentucky, was like the umbrella ministry for all of Mike Warnke's speakings and teachings and book writings and this, that, and the other. According to people who worked for the ministry at the time as secretaries, as people who answered phones, people who wrote letters, people who set his appointments— it seems like Warnke really just liked the ritual of it all. He wanted to be a Orthodox priest so that he could dress up in priest robes and swing incense censers around. That was kind of his uh, primary means of engaging with his ordination. Man, it's wild just becoming a priest for the vibes. Mm-hmm. So Phyllis Swearinger was one of these people that was interviewed for the Cornerstone magazine piece who worked at the Holy Orthodox Catholic Church in Kentucky with Mike Warnke. Phyllis said that despite massive amounts of money came in coming in, Warnke spent recklessly and it was very hard to maintain a budget. A direct quote from Phyllis, Mike told me he felt he deserved to make as large a salary as Jimmy Swaggart was making. And throughout these... Mm early 80s years after the incorporation of the holy i'm gonna say hocck holy orthodox catholic church in kentucky um mike's salary and rose's salary grew from starting around let me see where's that table there's a table of this there it is so in 1984 mike's salary 
was in 1984, HOCCK's total revenue was $900,000. Mike only took a $34,500 salary and Rose earned $11,500. In 1985, Mike's pay almost tripled to $95,617, and Rose's pay went up about 7.5 times, 750%, to $83,417. The next year, they almost doubled again to be in the $150,000 range each. So, 300000 total as a couple. And by in 19... the 80s, that's like crazy yeah. money. Yeah. And by 1990, Mike's annual income was $239,291, and Rose's was $230,291. I mean, that's like televangelist numbers. Yeah. For, for the day, for the time. Yeah. Their, their yearly revenue in the late 80s up to 1990 was over $2 million a year. Wow. But not only were those their personal salaries, Mike and Rose also had almost endless expense accounts through the ministry. Mike would want to uh, have the trees trimmed at his house, and Phyllis would have to write a check for that. So not only did they make large personal salaries, they also used ministry money for everything, uh, including the mansion that they lived in, which was formerly a plantation, which is gross. Gross, gross, yeah. gross, bad, Mike Warnke. I mean, earlier when I said racist, you know. Yeah, uh, the way that he writes about his fellow soldiers in Vietnam, like, oh, this is a place where I really learned that there's no race when we're all in something together and that I had to deal with some of my prejudices. Uh, I wouldn't classify him as not not racist the way you might think that he would be. It's just that that main character syndrome of, oh, I'm going to live in a house that used to be a plantation and I am not going to think about the the horrible things that happened there or the damage that that would do to other people who would see me living in that house like I don't care. Well, I also think it's entirely possible that he, uh, that, that what he wrote about Vietnam was possibly not even written by him. Uh, I mean, it could it have rang, been. It, it have rang true been. for me, but it, also I have no way of knowing other than my gut feeling. Yeah, but it could have been written by somebody who was in Vietnam and that he stole it from them. No, oh, that's true. That's true. Anyway, I think it it's just such main character syndrome. He's like, oh, I am going to get to live in a mansion. And he doesn't care what that house stands for, what it represents to people, what it represents to him, the horrible things that happened there, the legacy of harm. But he doesn't care. I don't think it's, I think it's like selfishness racism not like i don't know i'm not explaining myself well so he's like scarlet o'hara <sighs> sure i guess it's it's self-centeredness like i don't like he doesn't care if he's being racist which is pretty anyway it's gross yeah no matter no matter how much i psychoanalyze him or why he did that that is a gross thing to do so in 1985 the satanic panic began to pick up steam big time. 
That's when Warnke appeared on an ABC 2020 report called The Devil Worshippers. Oh, of course he did. Mm-hmm. So the Warnke ministry began to expand exponentially. They like to tell sad stories of children affected by satanic ritual abuse to raise money. And then they pivoted to fundraising hardcore for a new office complex for the Warnke ministry. In this office complex, there was supposed to be medical services and a rehab center for people who had been affected by drug use or by Satanism. Important sidebar, I want to give our official position on satanic ritual abuse. <clears throat> oh, we have an official position on satanic ritual abuse? Yeah, we do because before. of reasons. <sighs> there are surely many people who have been abused in settings that used the trappings of Satanism or witchcraft. There are surely many people who have been abused in settings that involved Christianity or Christian practice as well. It is a very real thing for certain traumatic memories to be repressed in a person's mind, and it is real and possible for a person to recover repressed traumatic memories in therapy. However, during the Satanic Panic in particular, Many of the accusations of satanic ritual abuse and recovered memories were brought about by unethical therapy practices that implanted memories that never happened into therapy subjects. The most famous example is the debunked book Michelle Remembers. We certainly do not want to blame or shame anyone who is affected by these terrible therapy practices and thought that they discovered repressed memories. And we don't want to say that oh, if it's a story about satanic ritual abuse, it's fake, because that's not the truth. The truth is that many of these shocking claims around the satanic panic are simply not true because of, and it's not because of lying therapy subjects, it's because of unethical therapy practitioners. Or it's because of grifters like Mike Warnke or Jack Chick or John Todd. Or grifters, right. And so I, I don't ever want to put the, because the, the woman who wrote Michelle Remembers thought, I have no reason to believe that she didn't think she experienced this horrible abuse. I mean, she married her therapist, too, afterwards. So that should tell you something about the ethics of this guy. Right. Yeah, he, he married a therapy client who was very young when she first became his client, and he discovered all of these repressed memories of abuse. It's, it is clear who is the villain here, and it's not Michelle. As we discussed in our Satanic Panic episodes, school records, medical records, the memories of her sister all disproved the supposed repressed memories that her therapist uncovered. Just to be clear, um, it's I don't think it's ethical at all to say, oh, no one has ever been abused by people uh, you know, taking the rituals of Satanism and using them to hurt people. That That would be a crazy thing to say. That's obviously untrue. Obviously, this is a thing that has happened to some people, just like people have been abused with the trappings of Christianity and the trappings of other religions as well. The idea that a what is not true is that there was a massive network of millions of Satanists who engaged in ritual child abuse and then hid the memories in the brains of their child victims and were later discovered by therapists who were out to make money. That's what's not true. So here's a question. Whatever happened with this rehab center? Uh... 
it turns out, so they did raise money, they did build a complex, but the complex never did any include any medical facilities or a rehab center at all. I do not mean that they built a building for medical services or rehab centers and then they never did anything with that building. What I mean is that they never built a building for it. Um, so Dr. John huh. Cooper, who was hired to be the director of a seminar department that a seminar department of the Warnke Ministry that was designed to teach police and local agencies about the dangers of Satanism and the signs of Satanism would get calls from people who had heard about this rehab center. They would call him wanting to get a loved one in to the rehab center, and he would have to tell them that the rehab center did not exist. He couldn't just say that it was full? <laughs> if he I mean, wanted to lie, a but he kind of seems like a good guy to me. Oh, man, that is... What a grifter. I'm, I'm yeah. so mad at you. Like, Mike so, Warren, like, literally the worst. Yeah, I, I hate him so much more than I thought I would. So, despite the growth and popularity of the Warnke Ministry and the success of their extensive fundraising, things were not going well in Warnke's third marriage to Rose Hall Warnke. Rose wrote a book about their marriage called The Great Pretender, which you would think is like she's calling Mike the Great Pretender, but actually she's calling Satan the Great Pretender. But that's really ironic in the title. <laughs> uh, I feel like that was Freudian somehow. This book was published in 1985. It talked about how they met and their ministry. Weirdly, when she talks about how they met, she conveniently omits that he was married to someone else at the time. Wow. Um, yeah. She apparently makes it out like she was the first wife. Um, Mike was definitely a virgin when he met me. 100%. Despite all the satanic sex parties. Did that he did say that he, like he never actually said the things that he was doing sexually. He just said you can use your imagination basically. Yeah. So Rose says that they were having marital problems in 1984 and this is a quote from The Great Pretender. We had a situation this last year when we felt there was nothing left between us. We weren't communicating, and Satan provided a woman to fill the gap in Michael's life. Wow. So I was fighting with my husband, and so Satan made him cheat on me. Never fight with your husband. I mean, that's that's <sighs> such a... Oh, man, that's that's so fundy. That is so funny. Yeah, and they're not like, they're not IFB, they're not even Baptist, but that is a very fundy esque take for sure. Well, if he cheats on you, it's your fault. There you go. And also, like, Mike has supposedly been like set loose of Satan for like almost 20 years at this point. Well, if Satan gets a, a toehold in you, then he never really lets go. Right. So, but, but Satan can still send him more and more people to cheat on whoever his current partner is with i mean this is a like a warning sign that like i mean you may get saved by jesus but satan still you know he he sees you as as weakened so he can right he can that's and that's the point that rose was making in that book uh by 1991 these marital conflicts had become unfixable rose and mike divorced their uh, Christianity's excuse was that divorcing was the only way they were able to continue to work together in Warnke ministry and keep it going. 
Then they co-wrote a book called Recovering from Divorce. So they monetized their divorce. <laughs> Man. Um, which paints, it paints a more spiritualized picture of a marriage doomed by incompatibility and past trauma, completely glossed over the affair in 1984, which she previously wrote about in her other book. So in, in the first book, The Great Pretender, she talks about how he had an affair and she threatened to shoot him. A credible threat to shoot I him. <laughs> and then... When they re like retold the story in 1991 in the book Recovering from Divorce, that affair was played off as like, oh, it was an indiscretion. And, oh, you know, we were able to get through it that time, but we were just finally not able to whatever. Uh, Rose got an absolute crap ton of money and assets in the divorce, which... I don't blame her for. I just bring up to point out how much money and assets Mike Warnke had at the time. And he married a former high school classmate six weeks after the divorce became final. Wait, his high school classmate? Yeah. His first wife was also his high school classmate. This is why, like, he's just... I mean, at least at this point, we he wasn't cheating on his former wife with the next wife before the yeah, divorce was final. No overlap. That we Man, know of. But he uh, can't, he, he literally cannot go six weeks without being married. It's, it's something. Maybe that's just like the, the, the Christian in him saying sex outside of marriage isn't okay unless you're cheating on your wife. <laughs> <laughs> unless you're cheating on your first wife with your second, with your future second wife, and then also cheating on your future second wife at the first time, at the same time with somebody who never became your wife. And then you also cheat on your second wife when she's your second wife with your third wife. It's okay if you have sex as long as you're married. It just doesn't necessarily have to be sex with the person you're married to. But you feel like if you're married, you know, knock yourself out. This article confirmed a lot of people's suspicions about Mike Warnke. He had a little bit of a fall from grace, uh, but was able to continue on a small scale doing Christian comedy. And I'm, I'm sure he had plenty of money to live out the rest of his life on based off of what Rose got in the divorce. So Cornerstone Magazine did reach out before publication of this 1991 article to get Warnke's response to it, as is common courtesy when you write an article about somebody as a big print publication. Warnke did not. He declined to speak to the magazine because he demanded that they meet with him with his lawyer present. And they didn't want to fly all the way out to Nashville to do a meeting with him so that his lawyer could be present. And they also felt like this is a matter of, this is a Christian matter. We're not accusing you of crimes. We're not accusing you of anything legal. We're accusing you of unchristian behavior. So this is a matter of a dispute between Christians and lawyers should not be involved. I mean, if the if you said fly out and we, I want to have my pastor here, yeah, they would have been fine with fine. that. Yeah, but he wouldn't meet with them without his lawyer present, which seems odd. Maybe he was doing something illegal. I don't know. I mean, all of that money that he was getting from his ministry that can't have all been. Maybe there was like some some. Tax I mean, he was using ministry like- funds for personal uses. That's probably not great. No, but I mean, but is it is that like illegal, illegal, or is that just kind of illegal? I don't know. 
is that like just like IRS stuff or is that like fraud stuff? That's you know, I actually don't know because I spent three hours last night doing the podcast taxes. (laughs) (laughs) RIP. And um, it was it was fine. It wasn't disastrous, but it was the longest form I think I've ever filled out in my life. Warren Key, because he was not given, he's he is butthurt now because I wasn't given a chance to comment on this article pre-publication. Well, yes, yes, you were. You just couldn't come to terms with the magazine. But he wrote a rather long-winded response to the magazine, which they printed, uh, which is, I think, the ethical thing to do. Um, sure. Well, that's what... Um, the biblical evangelist did when they wrote that long article of uh, the saddest story we ever published about Jack Hiles alleged affair and Jack Hiles wrote a response and they published, they printed his response. Warnke, <laughs> I only want to include a couple little things from his response. Just one thing I, that, that speaks to how much he hates women quote, Much of the information subsequently used seems to have been provided by Carolyn Alberti, who was instrumental in the breakup of my marriage to Sue, and who used her skill as a cold-hearted and calculated temptress to involve me in an ill-fated second marriage. Hmm. Instrumental in the breakup of your marriage to Sue. You don't say... The, the person that you were cheating on your wife with was instrumental to the breakup of that marriage. Yeah, that's such a passive... Like They, they always use passive voice when they refer to anything that they did, but when it's something that somebody else did like this. <laughs> and he also called her a cold-hearted and calculated temptress. Like, really, my dude? You came on to her. Oh, my God. You literally, like, beat her so badly that... Yeah, and then you yeah. also physically harmed her and emotionally harmed her. So the other the other things that are oh, knocked over my one hundred percent for Hiles pin. There. <laughs> <laughs> the other there there's very little of substance in his response. One thing he says is that those who knew him in high school and college that now deny that he was involved with the occult simply didn't know him well enough to know that he was involved with the occult and he was just that good at putting on a front. He specifically says they did not know him well enough to notice that he was wearing all black, had long hair, and was strung out on drugs 24-7. Wow. I mean... Um, sure. <laughs> okay. This, <laughs> this response um, included a ringing endorsement from our old friend Bob Larson which was fun to see. Warnke also says that he was one of the top three people on the Satanism hit list. He provides this like as proof of his story. Well, proof that the Satan seller is real is the fact that some Satanist told a friend of mine that I was one of the top three people on the Satanic hit list, and I'm the guy that they're now cursing when they do their rituals. I mean, in Christian... Uh, 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 in Christian thought, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, because these are the people that gave you the Bible is real because the Bible says that it's real. Right. Uh, I was really a Satanist because this other guy said that the Satanists are cursing me. Yeah. Um, I said so in my book. See, you can see it says it right here. You can tell that I'm on the top of the hit list. That's proof that I'm, I am w- I was there for real. 
Right. Yeah. Um, this doesn't track for me because he does not report being afflicted by boils even once as a Bummer. result of all of these demonic cursings. I mean, maybe he was just too strong. Maybe. So that's the that's the cornerstone article that is a a sampling of the things that they debunk about Mike Warnke's story. Uh, it's a twenty thousand word article. It is quite a piece, and I will link that um, on a, a free Patreon post so people can check that out. That is uh, what I have to say about that. Yeah. What's he doing now? What, what what's he done since that article came out? Is he just like retreated into obscurity, or is he still like out there? No, he's just scaled down his ministry, from what I understand. He do- he still does some Christian comedy stuff. He's really laid off the Satanism thing and doesn't talk about it very often. And he mostly travels um, within a short distance from his home. Huh. Let's see if he has anything coming up. Yeah, maybe we should go to a Mike Warnke gig and like heckle him. Do you want to heckle Mike Warnke at a gig? No, I want to go to his gig, put on um, something that like looks satanic, and then go to him after the show and be like, I've been caught up in Satanism and witchcraft. Can you help me find Jesus and see what happens? That would be amazing. You should do that. Yeah, I mean, you, you, could, you could do it pretty effectively, probably. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could. Uh, you, you got- so I'm seeing, I'm seeing some concerts in like 2009, 2011. There was maybe one in 2019, but it doesn't look like he has anything scheduled. He's pretty old these days. Yeah, he doesn't have to. He's he's embezzled so much money he doesn't have to work anyway. Yeah, I, I looked up a couple different like ticket websites, and there's nothing for 2023 yet. So we have talked about. The evidence for and against Mike Warnke's claim, um, primarily the evidence for. against, because <laughs> there is no, no evidence, evidence for, for Mike Warnke's claim. Um, <laughs> let's let's go take up the offering, and when we get back, we need to take some time to discuss whether John Todd or Mike Warnke is the guy who ripped off the other guy. Because we know they have had like a physical fight about this. We want to see if we can come to any kind of conclusion. I'm so stoked for this. I have opinions. Oh, I'm sure you do. I can't wait to tell you. Yeah. All right. G'day, I'm Troy. And I'm Brian. And we're the hosts of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, an ex-evangelical podcast. We used to be loyal members and leaders in Australian Christian megachurches, but we're not anymore. I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist is an honest and hilarious peek behind the curtain at the weird, the worrying, and sometimes traumatic world of evangelicals and Pentecostals. We share our stories, we interview prominent guests in the global ex-evangelical space, and provide a platform for others to tell their stories about their time in evangelicalism and their journey out. Shortlisted at the recent Australian Podcast Awards, I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist gives you a unique global perspective into one of the fastest growing religions in the world from the people who actually lived it. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and IWasAteenageFundamentalist.com. 
Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Show. We are back from our break. We've just discussed the Cornerstone article. Which refuted literally everything that Mike Warnke has ever said about his entire life for all of human history. So now that we've got, well, now we've got all the evidence on the table. We've got uh, not a good timeline because Warnke won't give us one. But There's we've got no timeline. Cl- <laughs> we've, we are as close to having a timeline as we're going to get. So we have all the sure. evidence that we're going to be able to get our hands on at this point. Let's do it. Mike Warnke versus John Todd. All right, it's the the rumble in the uh, in the Satan pit. <laughs> not the rumble in the Satan pit. The rumble in in not the octagon. The pentagram. Rumble in the pentagram. Let's get into it. <laughs> <laughs> so, as you guys uh, know, if you listen to our John Todd episode, you will know that John Todd's story and Mike Warnke's story are remarkably similar. And so I want to maybe take some time to figure out which, who was who, we. I mean, we know both of these stories are like complete bullshit. And they were made up by somebody, but I want to see if we can figure out whose story was made up by who and and who like and and who stole it from the other one. That's that's the question that I want to answer. I think that's a, a a very good question to try to answer. There are so many similarities in the story. So loss or separation from parents, although it happened in different ways. Very similar claims about the witchcraft scene, uh, specifically that witchcraft uh, is funded primarily by drug smuggling. Uh, Similar claims about the Illuminati, similar death threat claims, uh, claims that they were radicalized through college. Uh, attained somehow a high position within the witchcraft organization. Very similar claims about the Illuminati, about their personal stories, running dr- running drugs, doing drugs, joining the military, getting shot at by Satanists. There are a lot of similarities. So here's the question then. Are we 100% sure that either of them is a ripoff artist? 
uh, with regards to the story. So how do we know that they both didn't come up with this story independently of one another? Like, how, like what if John Todd just turned out to be VHS and Mike Warnke turned out to be Betamax, but they came up with like, is it possible that while neither of them are telling the truth, neither of them stole it from the other because they're both very tropey and they have tons of cliches in them. So like it's that's the question. I personally believe that the stories are too similar to be made up independently. I don't know. How do you feel about that? I would agree with that. Also, the other thing that I think is that it can't be a coincidence that both John Todd and Mike Warnke mm-hmm. were both involved with the Melody Land Christian Center. Yes, and not at the same time, but so close to the same time that surely they knew people, they had people in common, friends in common. Yeah, and they were like, I mean, it was within a couple years of each other is yeah, how we, I would, yeah. We know that Mike Warnke was there in 1979, and we don't know exactly when he would have been no longer affiliated with Melody Land because he did You didn't, mean 1969. Yes, 1969. Because he didn't tell us in his book that he was ever at Melody Land. We only found that out from the Christianity or the um, Cornerstone article. So we don't know exactly when he would have stopped working with Melody Land, but we know that John Todd was there by 19, what did you say, 1973? It was end of 72, start of 73 mm-hmm. that we think John Todd was there. We know he was there in 73. Um, so, so at most, they missed each other by three years. Yes. Now, there's the differences between the two stories that we're talking about. I think that, and, and tell me whether or not you agree with this, because you're the one who actually read Warren Key's book. I read some excerpts from it, but I didn't read the whole thing. Warren Key's book has more narrative consistency, but John Todd's is richer in lore. That depends on how you define narrative consistency, because narrative consistency in universe, yes, Mike Warnke's makes a lot more sense. It's more plausible of a story. When we look at it from an outside perspective, we know his timeline is just wild. Yes. The thing with John Todd's, though, is that if you read John Todd's, you're like, okay, this was made up by an absolute madman. This, like, nothing in here makes any sense whatsoever. Mike Warnke also has a believable origin story, which John Todd severely lacks. Right. John Todd's origin story is that he was born into a witchcraft family, and he has all this lore about his witchcraft family. Right. I was born into a witchcraft family, and when I turned 18... There's nothing previous to that, no additional information about his life, nothing to help us flesh out this supposed person who was born into this position of leadership within the Illuminati. Mike Warnke, on the other hand, provides a mostly true or at least partially true account of his young life. Right. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here. They do both have the themes of abandonment by parents, though, which I think is interesting. See, now, if if either of these stories were anything close to true, I would say that this narrative consistency is a point towards Warren Key being the originator. But because we both know both of them are liars, I think that this is a point in the other direction. I don't know. Because I'm trying to like lay out all the evidence from one side or, or towards the other. 
I think that Mike Warnke has a better sense of what a Christian audience will react well to than John Todd does, which is one of the reasons why I think John Todd's story is so loony, because I think he got up there and started saying and it caught on. I sort of get the impression with Todd that he got up there to give testimony and he said something like, I was involved in the occult and I was a devil worshiper. I was the baddest of them all, but now I found Jesus, which would have been like kind of true, right? Sure. I mean, because <laughs> we know he he did work at like the occult bookshop. Right. But then the reaction to that would have been great to the point that he would have just kept going and going and going. The thing about Todd's story is that I know like Mike Warnke actually kind of like his upbringing story is a little bit true. The thing that John Todd does is that a lot of the par- parts of his story, um, the ones that are like made up are ones that actually kind of happen, but not really, you know, like his story about um, he was in the army and he got away with murder because he's a Collins. That was totally made up, right. but he was in the army. Right. Briefly. Yeah, briefly before getting kicked out for being a like literally unable to distinguish truth from reality, which continued being a problem for for him for a while. Yes, his story about being a grand druid priest who visited JFK on his yacht was also made up, but he was involved in the occult, which there's little to no evidence that Mike Warnke ever was. His story about controlling all of the drug trade in Texas was totally made up but we do know that john todd probably did a lot of drugs john todd's drug stories are a lot more believable than warnke's yeah like i i hear john todd talk about drugs and i'm like this man has done many drugs where mike warnke is like i read about drugs in a book that's meant to warn people not to do drugs (laughs) right (laughs) like all of mike warnke's drug stories are like say no to drugs kids like and john todd's are just like yo it is fire but don't do it (laughs) which is so ironic because in mike warnke's later life when he was traveling on the road multiple people testify that he was drinking a ton and doing at least smoking a lot of weed if not doing other drugs as well john todd's stories about engaging in satanic ritual abuse were made up but he did use the occult as a way to sexually abuse young women Right. Like the John Todd story didn't make any like any sense whatsoever, but if you're a guy who just embellishes and makes everything that you've done like into the biggest craziest thing if you're just like a serial exaggerator to the 1000th degree, then it makes sense why John Todd would tell that story. Yeah. So- I think I think the question is motive. Why why would either one of these people tell this story and attempt to gain a bigger and bigger Christian audience. Now, both of these people are motivated by money because John Todd and Mike Warnke both extensively fundraised for a supposed Christian Satanism rehab center. Neither of them ever built one. They both just took the money and ran. But Mike Warnke throughout his book talks about how he wanted to be the big guy. He wanted to be the guy on top. He, he had to get to the next level. And I think he told on himself quite a bit there. 
Whereas John Todd's motivation is, I want to sexually abuse teenage girls, and this is a way for me to do it. And then if I keep doing that, then I can keep going back and forth between the occult and Christianity and um, getting redeemed and... I don't want to minimize the severity of the abuses that John Todd perpetrated. However, I don't think the ability to commit abuse was his primary motivation because people, people who want to harm and abuse other people, especially minors, have so many avenues by which they can do that. I don't see him going specifically into this Christian testimony teaching realm i don't see any way and i don't see any reason why that would help him achieve his goal if his goal was to prey on teenage girls because he could have done that just as well by becoming a more respected figure in the occult world because he did that perfectly well when he worked in an occult shop in ohio i think Right. He Hmm. didn't need Christianity in order to have access to young women to prey on. I think what John Todd wanted was to float through life. I think what John Todd wanted was a life that was kind of planned out for him and a life where he didn't have to do very much labor. I see what you're saying there, and I get it. As far as motivation goes, I'm not sure... Either way, because I think both of those motivations make both of these guys kind of untrustworthy. The place where then I have to just come down to to say, well, who's the originator is the timeline and who started talking about this stuff first. Mike Warnke's book came out in fall of 72, but the meeting that he had with Les Jones and Dave Balsiger to like decide, yes, we're going to write this book. That was in early 72. And that was prior to John Todd, I think, really coming forward and talking about any of this stuff. Yeah, John Todd became, got into the Jesus movement thing in 1972, but he didn't go on the uh, Doug Clark show until 1973. At which point the book had already been out. Yes. So, and was making a big splash in the Christian scene. So that, I think, rules out John Todd being the originator of this claim. That being, because what I, I mean, what I did was I looked for like ways in which uh, 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 Mike Warnke could have maybe taken this story from John Todd before John Todd got involved with the Melody Land Christian Center, but I, I like I couldn't find any evidence of that. Um, so I think that possibly rules out John Todd as being the originator of this claim. But I want to draw your attention to a quote from the uh, the Cornerstone article okay. that I read. And this, I think, is very sort of telling. And this was one of the biggest things when I read this quote, I said, well, this means that probably John Todd is the originator because I thought that this quote ruled out Mike Warnke. So here's here's the quote. It says, while in San Diego, the Warnkeys visited Scott Memorial Baptist Church, pastor by now well-known church leader and author Tim LaHaye and his wife, Beverly. In the Satan Cellar, 
Warnke offers one version of what happened when the LaHays visited the Warnke home. Mike says that he told Tim LaHay about the Illuminati. And here's the, um, that uh, this is the excerpt from the Satan seller that they quoted in the article. It says, I had already told him I had been to an occult conference. There were some weird guys that seemed to be the real backers of the whole thing. I heard the word Illuminati. Um, and th- that's from Mike Warnke. But this is what Dr. LaHaye says. LaHaye says, um, the conversation wasn't really like he put it in the book. I brought up the term Illuminati first. I had been reading a book on the subject and I tried testing him to see if he really knew anything about it. He didn't seem to ever have heard the word before. (laughs) Mike gave us a little of his testimony, says Beverly LaHaye, who is now head of Concerned Women for America. He said in a book about the leaders of the Satan church had disappeared off his shelf when he became interested in Christianity. Dr. LaHaye sums up his type of person, personality tells stories for effect, not accuracy. And so this sick fundy burn. So this is a meeting that took place, I believe in 1971 or 72. Right. Yes. Let me see if I can find that conversation in the book. Because it was in San Diego, which is when Mike Warnke was still in the Navy. And that's why he was in San Diego. Right. See, here's the thing is that Mike Warnke had to have Tim LaHaye tell him about the Illuminati. Mike Warnke just went around and started saying, I was a big Satanist. I was a big Satanist. And then LaHaye tells him about the Illuminati. And then he said, and then he like incorporates that into his story. But with John Todd, Illuminati was in there from the beginning. So this is why I think that Warren key and Todd both stole their stories from somebody else. And we don't know who that person is. What? Okay. Counterpoint. What if this was a collaboration between Warren key and Todd? So John Todd, as we had previously hypothesized was in the navy and read the illuminati fake conspiracy letters in playboy yeah he was in the army not the navy but yeah that's right um but there were there were um i don't have the john todd notes in front of me but there were uh fake letters written in like letters to the editor at playboy magazine um it's all incredibly well documented and we have that in our john todd episode And we had hypothesized maybe John Todd read those letters and got big ideas in his head about the Illuminati and made up this story about having been in a witchcraft family. So what if that happened first, but John Todd didn't have a way to market this story until he read The Satan Seller? And then he borrowed all of these pieces of lore and ritual from the Satan seller, which Mike Warnke got from where? That's the question. Huh. So, and then Warnke heard John Todd's testimony and was like, oh, that was rad. I'm going to add bits of that back into my story and then use those pieces in future books. And then they just kind of continually borrowed from each other for a while. This is like a Beatles slash Rolling Stones relationship. Sure. Is um, the one problem that I have with that is that 
LaHaye says that he had been reading a book on the subject of the Illuminati. So somebody had published a book about the Illuminati for, I guess, a Christian audience about this big conspiracy prior to Mike Warnke hearing about it, prior to to uh, him hearing about it from LaHaye in 71 or 72. So I, I don't know what book that is. I don't know either. I I can tell you this kind of conspiratorial thinking was mainstream in evangelical Christianity prior to 1970. Okay. Because of the um the renewed interest in the doctrines and the teachings around the rapture which happened in the 1960s. Interesting. And that's how the protocols of the elders of Zion gets kind of lumped in with this because that's a document that was made for a Christian audience in order mm-hmm. to hmm, this is this is all getting very interesting. I like, But in but we talked about <coughs> um quick C- CW I'm talking about the rapture. I'm not going to be talking about it for very long. We've talked about in previous episodes how this idea of the rapture was not Christian theology for so, so much of Christian history. And the modern concept of the rapture, as we think about it today, was premiered by a preacher named William Miller, who was a Baptist minister in the mid-1800s. Directly connected to Miller was uh, Ellen White. Is that her? Yeah, Ellen G. White, who was the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And the other split off of this new rapture teaching was uh, the modern evangelical movement. This this teaching became a thing in the mid-1800s, but it wasn't the cultural obsession that it is today until the 60s. So, in, in the 1960s, it was a fad. It was a trend within Christianity to get super deep into the book of Revelation and try to predict all of these things about the rapture and the end times. It was literally just trendy. And that led to, very naturally, to conspiratorial type thinking. Because if you believe that the rapture is coming soon, then you believe that the Antichrist is already being set up. And that just immediately leads you to think, well, who is it? And then you start saying that Obama is the Antichrist. <laughs> right. See, this is, yeah. Cause I mean, if you're, especially if you're living in a time when in, in the 1960s was such a tense time in mm-hmm. that everybody was, you were worried that the world could literally end by human means, that the Cold War was going to become a not so cold war and that the United States and Russia were going to, engage in a nuclear conflict and it would end life on earth so of course it makes sense that people dug into the bible and the part of the bible that is traditionally associated with end times and end times prophecy because of course people wanted to know what was coming next i mean it's a natural anxiety response as well because if you can figure out when something is going to happen then you can take control over it right it's such a it's such a like a psychological phenomenon and all of the people who are into this they're the kinds of people that are just like psychology is you know is from the devil 
but they're <laughs> also these people who like their entire life is based on trying to psychologically deal with the idea that the world could come to an end. This is so loony, man. Right. So I, I think if we, if we back up that step and look at the environment into which John Todd and Mike Warnke's stories were born, maybe their stories make a little more sense. Yeah. And John Todd ended up linking up with Jack Chick and mm-hmm. doing all of the stuff with the Chick comics. And Mike Warnke kind of had his own thing going all like, and, and being a, a Christian speaker and a Christian comedian and getting his own thing going that way. So I will say, I think there is a, there is a Chick comic that references John Todd. And we have done an episode, a full episode on that particular comic book it's the first comic book that introduces the beefy boys for jesus tim and jim tim and Uh, jim yeah and in that comic there are details that are directly from the satan seller and that i absolutely think john todd stole and then told it to jack chick as if it was his own story so the reason the one reason why i'm having a little bit of difficulty believing that john todd stole the story from Warren Key's book is because by the time John Todd was on Amazing Stories and um, telling his story to the public and getting airtime from the public for that, Mike Warren Key's book was already a Christian bestseller. So I don't think John Todd could have gotten away with completely ripping off Warren Key's story if he started telling it after Warren Key had already become popular. It just doesn't make any sense. I think it does make sense because this is a world without the internet. If you didn't happen to Hmm. see that episode of Amazing Stories on that particular day, you would have no idea that John Todd existed. Or if you did happen to see that episode of Amazing Stories on that particular day, but you hadn't read The Satan Seller, you would have no idea that Mike Warnke existed. So, okay, there's another timeline issue here then. The one fixed date that John Todd actually gives us, and this is actually verifiable because Jack Chick also verifies this date, is September 4th, 1972, in which John Todd says that he reads the tract Bewitched. um, And then he calls up Jack Chick and asks him about it and then feeds Jack Chick the story that he grew up on the set of the TV show Bewitched. John Todd had already been verifiably involved with cult activities prior to the publication of Warren Key's book, but I don't know what time he started saying that he was the high priest of the Illuminati. September 4th, 1972, I believe that's prior to the publication of Warren Key's book. And he had a conversation with Jack Chick about this Mm -hmm. prior to the public. So this is all like this all overlaps and none of it makes like it's, it's so hard to suss out a timeline also because these guys lie so much. But this mm-hmm. is verified because this is the one date that Jack Chick says, yeah, that's actually the date that he called me on. And John Todd, that's the one date when he actually will give and you can narrow it down because, you know, if somebody's a pathological liar, what they'll do is they'll tell a bunch of lies and then there will be one thing in there that they'll say that's 100% true and you can verify that. You can talk to this person, this person, this person, this person. So you go and you research that one claim that they make and you look it up and you're like, yep, that's true. And then you ignore all the other bullshit that's around it. So that's what he does. My theory is also that John Todd may not have been using the term Illuminati, but that he may have been talking about how he was a grand druid priest and that 
maybe Warnke heard that prior to that and told it to LaHaye and LaHaye says the Illuminati bit and then Warnke adopts that and then when the Satan seller comes out that's the term that's commonly being used and then Todd goes on TV and starts using it and then accuses Warnke of stealing his story and then Warnke in turn accuses Todd of stealing his story because he was calling it the Illuminati first I that's certainly plausible. I think the idea that they both stole and borrowed from each other's stories seems very likely to me. And there I have I have another I guess piece of evidence that Warren Key is a perpetual uh, uh thief of other people's work. Because Sadie, uh, you spent the preparation for this episode reading The Satan Seller. I spent the preparation for this episode watching a bunch of Mike Warnke's stand-up comedy. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, you know how George Carlin has the, the stand-up special that's like uh, seven words you can't say on television? Yes. I feel like Mike Warnke should have called his stand-up special seven stand-up bits shamelessly stolen from George Carlin. <laughs> Okay. You know, maybe that's not fair to uh, Warnke because he definitely stole some jokes from Jerry Seinfeld as well. Um, oh, man. <laughs> no, I like, I legit, I watched one of his bits. Um, we was talking about airplanes and flying and whatever. And it was word for word lifted from a Jerry Seinfeld bit on airplanes. And I know Jerry Seinfeld makes a lot of jokes about airplanes, but this was like almost word for word lifted from a Jerry Seinfeld bit on airplanes. This is like Seinfeld a does a lot of transportation related jokes in general. When I saw him in Vegas, um, a lot of his set was about Uber. <laughs> What's the I mean, deal with Uber? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of his thing, though, is that like the the whole observational humor that he was doing, he was a bit of a, I, I don't want to say he was like the guy that invented that, but he was a pioneer in bringing that to a much more mainstream audience. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, those guys, they, they're hilarious, like amazing. But a lot of their comedy wasn't necessarily appropriate for... Uh, a family-friendly audience, and Jerry Seinfeld was able to take a lot of that and, and make it a bit more family-friendly. So, so Warnke is is fine with just stealing other people's jokes. Yes. Why? Why would he not be fine with stealing other people's religious testimonies? Then, right? Like what? Like what? I got from his thing is that he like he'll like be self-effacing he'll make up he'll make fun of his own appearance like because I don't know if you've seen pictures of Mike Warnke from the 80s he's got like a he looks kind of like if like Weird Al had a baby with Gallagher you know what I'm saying wow like his his comedy is like 30% stand-up comedy and like 70% sermon but like the stand-up comedy bits are just shamelessly stolen but maybe this is kind of what Christian comedian is supposed to sound like because the audience is used to like when a man comes up, up on stage, he's going to talk about Jesus and the Bible for a bit and have the same delivery as a pastor. But then like Mike Warnke is going to do that 70% of the time, but then 30% of the time, he's just going to insert a bunch of jokes that he stole. The uh, Here's one, one of the ones that he says, um, and, and this was actually like a funny bit, and I don't know if he stole this. 
um, from somewhere, but like this is one of his bits where he says, you might not think I'm a Christian because I have long hair, but there's a spiritual reason I've got long hair. As a Christian, you've got to have a spiritual reason for everything because you're not allowed to just do nothing. You have to get up in the morning and say, I need a cheese sandwich. And somebody will say, you show me cheese sandwich in the word of God. Like he's... (laughs) You know, that's okay, a funny yes, joke. That's actually funny. Yeah, but you know, he's he's a Christian comedian, but he rips on Christians. But that's the thing. Like, oh, like so many of these jokes, though, they're totally just ripped off from other people. Anyway, um, my point is that like his comedy is ripped off. Warren Key has an establishable pattern of taking other people's work, their stories, putting a Christian spin on them, and then passing them off as his own work because his audience doesn't pay attention to mainstream culture and they won't know the difference. So that's. Uh, kind of how I feel about that. I just, I feel like a person who is willing to knowingly and purposely plagiarize, especially in a field like stand-up comedy where that is such a taboo. Right. But Warren Key isn't trying to be like a mainstream comic. He's just trying to do like comedy for Christians and Christians won't go and see a mainstream comic. If he was a mainstream comic, then he wouldn't get booked anywhere because frankly, he's not that funny. He's not that good. And he's just popular because he's Christian. Yeah. But I I think my point is that if he's willing to rip off other comedians, what makes him trustworthy to tell his own story when his own story is so implausible. So let's take all of the evidence that we have compiled, the testimonies from people who knew him, the in, the um, discrepancies in his timeline, the general implausibility of his story, and let's wipe away all of the testimonies from people who knew him. Let's say that everybody who knew him either didn't know about his supposed occult involvement or uh, he used black magic to cover it up or he used black magic to cover it up or they've been paid off by the Illuminati. So all the majority of the evidence we have against him is other people's testimonies. So let's wipe that off the board for a moment. And we will only look at the timeline discrepancies and the general implausibility of his story. So on that evidence alone, we wouldn't say that we disproved his story or that we debunked his story. But what we're left with when we weigh the book, The Satan Seller, against the weird timeline and the general wildness of his story is a question mark. What we get is indeterminate results. So with those indeterminate results... We would be looking for other areas in his life in which he is trustworthy or not trustworthy. And I feel like in his main career as a Christian comedian, ripping off other people's jokes and passing them off as his own is a major point towards he is not a credible or trustworthy person. Also cheating on his wife a gazillion times. Yeah. Also all of the infidelity. Yeah. And the uh, all, all of that stuff. Um, can you imagine being his fourth wife? Oh man. Like I don't I don't mean to you know, I don't mean to shame her because I'm I'm sure he is a manipulative person and a very smooth talker. But can you imagine thinking 
Well, he cheated on his first wife with his second wife. He cheated on his second wife with somebody else before they were even married. And then after they were married, he cheated on his second wife again with the person who became his third wife. And then while they were married, he cheated on her with somebody else. And then six weeks after they got divorced, he married me. But this is the one that's going to work out. He probably told his fourth wife that she was his second wife. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, most likely he told his second wife, he told his third wife that she was his second wife. Oh, Apparently. Man. Um, so I, and I don't mean to shame his current wife, who is number four. I, I mean to point out the manipulation that he is capable of. There's one more Mike Warnke and John Todd detail that I just kind of want to throw in there awesome. um, for flavor, for just like an added kick. Mike Warnke wrote the foreword to a book debunking John Todd. Ooh. This, because to me, when I saw that, this was a detail that was in the Cornerstone article. This seems like a f you in particularly move. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to think that Mike Warnke probably was pretty freaking pissed that John Todd came out here with a almost identical story to him. Hey, and Warnke probably hated the fact that john todd was the guy who got in with jack chick instead of him and john todd was the guy who got all who got to be the source in the tim and jim comics and was the guy who got to be the source for the chick tracks and got to like kickstart the satanic panic and he's just like those are my roses i want them there was another guy who was nearly as famous as uh, Mike Warnke or John Todd. His name is Herschel Smith, and he also had a very similar testimony where he was, uh, you know, lured into Satanism and then as an adult became a Christian. Yeah. Oh, man. So and maybe. So why is Warnke not attacking him? Why is Warnke got a grudge against John Todd? Maybe we should look into Herschel Smith and see if he's the guy that came up with it. Because maybe Warnke and John Todd both ripped off Herschel Smith. <laughs> or maybe I, I think Smith ripped off both <laughs> both Warnke and Todd. Um because I just I did a quick Google and the first thing I came up with was an article <laughs> where um when Mike Warnke was done with the Witchmobile and decided to move on to bigger and better things, <laughs> Smith bought the Witchmobile. Wow. Yeah. So it's like Gallagher's brother taking over Gallagher's act. Sure. <laughs> I'm pretending Man. I know what that is. <laughs> That's like, you know, Gallagher, he was the comedian. He would smash watermelons. Oh, yeah. I've heard and then he him. decided to retire and he sold his act to his twin brother. That was smart. Yeah. See, and you can go and, and, and see Gallagher. Um, yeah, I don't know. I like I want to cuz I think that they what I think is that I think that they both got their stories from the same place, but because they're both such like serial liars and pathological liars and people who you can't get a straight answer of from anything and also John Todd is dead, I want to know where it was that they got this story. I really like this conspiracy stuff cuz this satanic panic stuff evolves into QAnon and that's affecting everything that's going on today that's why when they announced that some celebrity has died every, like a bunch of like 
randos on Twitter are just like, did they get the jab? Did they die of heart disease? Maybe people are randomly dot like that's mm-hmm. that's why that happens, but that's traceable back to QAnon, which is traceable back to the satanic panic which is traceable back to the protocols of the elders of zion what we're missing is that missing link between the protocols and the um satanic panic and i want to find out what it is because it's it's so interesting to me especially as a jewish man i want like this is the one conspiracy that has killed more of my people than any other conspiracy since like i don't know saying that we killed jesus yeah Although, isn't it kind of the same conspiracy, though? It is, but it's like... It's just a version. It's it's just a very distinctive version of the same conspiracy. Right. I don't know. I like, that's what I want to... I want to find that f***ing middle piece, and we're so close to digging it up, and I just don't know exactly what it is. Well, I'm sitting here in the podcast closet, and uh, I have just moved all of my cult-related books in here so that they're here for for easy reference. And I have procured one, at least two, I think three different Jack Chick biographies. And if I have the three that I think I have, I have all of the Jack Chick biographies because there there is a connection through Jack Chick for sure. I don't want to say, oh, he started the satanic panic because he didn't, but he was a huge part of how Americans perceived the satanic panic. He was absolutely a leader. So I've got that biography of him and maybe that'll help us nail down which of these guys he was hanging out with when and who had an influence on him. And we're going to do an episode on that and quite a few other um satanic type things over the summer is this when we get to announce the summer of satan let's announce the summer of satan (laughs) yeah so um this summer uh, we uh, we basically we've planned out most of our spring content basically up through the beginning uh up through the end of may so we, we have our episodes planned out up through the end of may june as you guys all know is pride month yay we love doing pride month content um and that's going to be a month when uh, all of our episodes are going to be specifically lgbtq focused content and we're excited for that but when we come back from that we're gonna have what we're gonna call the summer of satan sadie do you want to elaborate <laughs> Yes. So, um, for we'll do a few weeks of content. We don't know exactly how long we're going to go on this yet, but for at least a few weeks in July, we are going to do some more satanic panic type content. This is one of the most fun things, I think, for me to dig into because there are things that can be debunked and there are things that can make us all feel better about letting our children watch Disney movies. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know make the the little voice in your head that says the demons are getting in your kid shut up which is always a nice thing <laughs> right because i mean satanic panics back it's queuing on and they're accusing like the drag queens of of trying to of, of trying to be for satan and stuff and they're trying to do all of these bad things based on that and you just gotta like Right. And that's, that's so, and that's related. It's coming right after Pride Month because it's related to the, um, highly discriminatory, highly discriminatory quote unquote drag bans that are happening in many different states right now. 
I put uh, virtual scare quotes around drag bands because really those those bills are intended to not only ban drag performers from giving us their wonderful gift of entertainment, but also to effectively ban trans people presenting as themselves in public. Which is completely illegal for them to pass these laws. You can't tell somebody that they can that they have to dress a certain way that's fucking illegal there's like there's no legal grounds that you can base that off of you can't tell somebody it's illegal for you to wear a dress in public it's like well unfortunately you can tell people that uh, i think what you're trying you're to say try. is that you should not be able to well it's it's against the constitution although with the supreme court the way that it is these days they don't really give a shit about that they wipe their ass with it they um use it as garden mulch but yeah. uh yeah so that's what we've got coming up listeners to the show uh please send in your questions to leaving at gmail.com send us your q a questions because in a couple of weeks we're going to have a q a episode and we're really excited for that one that's always uh, a good time we haven't done one in i think like a year or so it's been it's about been a just year. about exactly a year and um Certainly ask anything, ask anything that you like. Um, if you would like to have your name read along with your question, let us know your name, what name we can use for you and your correct pronouns so that we can use the correct pronouns for you. Um, and ask anything, but I would especially, I especially love the like, what do fundies think about this thing? Those are always really fun. <laughs> Yeah, um, and that's going to be a, a really good one. I love doing a good Q&A episode. Um, but yeah, send your questions to leavingedenpod at gmail.com. Next week, our episode is going to be all about pastor's wives and the influence that pastor's wives can have over a congregation. And so that's going to be very interesting. That's going to be a very specific um, look into the microcosm that is Fundy Culture. If you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, make sure you join our Facebook group and our subreddit. Both of those are called Eden Exodus. Eden Exodus. Follow our TikTok and interact with our TikTok content because as far as I know, we are still shadow banned on that platform despite so many of you following our page and 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 interacting with our videos that we're posting. You can do like a, a stitch with them. You can do a reaction with them. Um, just anything to like help us the algorithm say that our content isn't bad um, because for some reason it doesn't like our content. I don't know. Um, we're also posting those videos on Instagram as well. And that, uh, But you can follow our podcast on Facebook and Instagram at leaving and, and TikTok at leaving Eden podcast on Twitter at leaving Eden pod. Uh, Sadie, do you want to plug your social media? Sure thing. You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter music on Twitter at Hell yeah Sadie and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You guys have a great day. Bye-bye. <laughs>